Let's be honest. We've got a choice to make. Our way or God's way. It's like Peter said, add to your faith goodness. And onward and upward it goes to a lifestyle of godliness and love. So, take that path. Walk it. Live it. Because the change we need is what the world needs to see. Good like God. Hey, it's good to see all of you who are here in the room with me. And also, I want to welcome everybody who is watching online. And I do believe that God has a word for us as we continue this series, Good Like God. The world needs to see a body of Christ that displays the goodness of God. Now, that automatically entails some kind of moral struggle. We all know that there's a struggle that goes on between, you know, right and wrong, good and evil, and we feel that within us. And typically the image of that struggle is you got a little devil on one shoulder and a little angel on the other. Which one are you going to listen to? But for the follower of Christ, there is a more accurate image of the struggle. And it's not a little devil or a little angel. It is the old self versus the new self. For Christians, the struggle is the old you versus the new you in Jesus Christ. And we pick that up from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, where Paul says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So if anybody were to think, you know, as I think it's a legitimate question to ask, who, who do we think we are to think we could be good like God? The new you is created to be good like God. Amen? Amen. <laughs> and and I, I, I just love this aspect of Ephesians, and I'm, I'm kind of getting to love it a little bit more. I, I love Ephesians as a whole, and it's, it's probably my favorite book of the Bible. It's probably the one, at least at one point in my ministry earlier on, I could definitely have said that I've preached more from Ephesians than any other book. And I, I love the first part of Ephesians where Paul does things like pray for the church. And I've tried to make Paul's prayer for the church my prayer for the church. And Paul prays for things like that our spiritual eyes would be open, that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know God better, that we might know the hope to which he's called us, that we might know the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and that we might know the incomparably great power for us who believe. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, far above all rule and dominion, far above all other kinds of powers. I I love that aspect of, of Ephesians, don't you? Yes. It's powerful. It's good stuff. And I love the way Ephesians wraps up. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but it's against powers and principalities. Put on the full armor of God. Take your stand against the devil. You're going to still stand. I love that. I just do. But right in the middle of all that stuff, Paul makes a switch from talking about all these wonderful benefits that are ours through Jesus Christ. And then he starts meddling. You know, preachers, they, they tend to meddle. And, and 
Paul starts meddling right in the middle, and he goes from all these wonderful benefits to now, here are the expectations. And that's what we're going to deal with in this message, the expectations. The, the expectations really center on being good like God. The expectations center on issues of morality, of ethics, of relationships with one another. And see, what we see here is that Paul, he's very spiritual. This is a spiritual letter, but Paul is wanting to emphasize a spirituality that's not just all about revelation and spiritual warfare and fighting battles, but with being good like God, being spiritually mature, being emotionally healthy. Some of us might be aware of a book and a study called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Paul was very concerned with that. Relationally healthy spirituality, you might say. And so, you know, when Paul starts to talk about our expectations, what should be expected in light of all the benefits, what does first order of business when it comes to morality, ethics, relationally healthy spirituality? His first order of business is unity within the family of God. Ephesians 4, verse 1. This is where Paul makes that switch. So here's what he starts with. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Some of us are already struggling, aren't we? <laughs> and then verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So what does it mean to be good like God? What does it mean to live this new self created to be like God? First thing Paul wants to deal with, the first ethical implication of our benefits is that we be unified. Christian ethics begin with Christian relationships. And this, I know, sometimes we in the church world, we, we want to be practical. Tell me how to get along in my family. Tell me how to get along in the, the workplace. And Paul eventually does go there in his letter to the Ephesians. But before he goes there, he wants to talk to us, first of all, about your relationships with other Christians. That's where it starts. It starts with the household of God. It will get to your house. But Christian ethics and Christian relationships start with the house of God. And this is so important that Paul, he's getting ready. He's, giving all, he's wanting to give all these moral qualifications, these moral standards. But once he mentions unity, Paul does what he very often does. He, he does it earlier in Ephesians. He's praying for the church, and then he gets sidetracked, and then he gets back to the prayer. Here, he's wanting to lay out some ethical expectations. But once he mentions unity, he gets sidetracked. It's so important that, that Paul just gets sidetracked because it's such a strong manifestation of the goodness of God when the people of God stand together in unity. It is an appropriate moral concern. And a lot of times when we think of 
unity. We think of unity movements within the body of Christ. We think of unity events and, and Christians from different organizations getting together. And all that's really, really good. And I've devoted a whole lot of my ministry life to such efforts. But what it's really about is when just the people of God, like you and me, who come together week after week after week, not only in corporate worship settings, but also in life groups, which are very, very important to our life together, that it's just us learning how to love each other in real life. That's why we call them life groups, because it's a part of just learning how to love each other in everyday real life. That's where I think unity is both more meaningful and sometimes more difficult. Yeah, I don't have any problem getting together with somebody I only get or have to see once a month or once every six months. But man, when we start living life together, man, that's, that's where the challenge comes in, but that's where the blessings come in as well. And uh, can I just say, God has, has so blessed Victory Church in this regard, in, the, in regard to just unity and a visible demonstration of the unity of God across all kinds of barriers that in, in the world outside the church in terms of culture would, would dictate that we don't really belong together. We like different music. We're of different ethnicities. We're of different nationalities. We're, we're just from all over the world, and yet we come together and we love God together and we love each other and we do life together. <laughs> Jerice, one of our members, uh, was talking about the, our unity and what he saw. And he said, I, I was saying how not too long after coming back to the Lord, back to church here, I was walking from the lobby to the auditorium and got a clear revelation that this is the closest representation of heaven that I've experienced. Given the care, relationships, servitude mentality, ethnic diversity of victory, which starts with well, he says me and Pastor Lisa, but we all know it was really Pastor Lisa. You know, that, that you know, it, it's a touch of heaven. It really is. And, and I, I could go on and on. But it's different. It's different from anything out there in the world. And it should be different. We should display something different. We are different because of what God has done in us. Because we couldn't do this on our own. We couldn't do this on our own. So, uh, yeah, life together, unity. And then after this excursion into the topic of unity, Paul gets back to his ethics, which is where he was going in the first place when he began chapter 4. And so we pick up in verse 17. And now we look at this in terms of the expectation of goodness in the lives of the people of God. Paul says, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord. That's pretty strong, isn't it? I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. What he means is as the pagans do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. See, the old self, which he's describing here, is one that is darkened in its understanding and 
has a hardness of heart. Paul is dealing with the, the head and heart issues here. See, changing behavior. And he's going to be talking about some behavioral issues here. Before we get into changing behavior, we have to change our thinking. You want to change your life? Change your thinking. That's why Paul says elsewhere, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change by changing your thinking. Because behind most behavioral problems, there's a thinking problem. There's a heart problem. There's a heart issue. And really... God, God loves the world so much. He loves people so much. He's trying to reach through. He's trying to show his nature just in creation. He's trying to show his kindness. Paul said in some of his preaching that, that you know, th- this God who created everything, he gives water for your crops and things to gladden your heart. God is trying to reach, but our hearts are hardened. Because we as human beings have chosen just sensual desires. We've chosen fleshly desires over honoring and thanking God. We've got a heart problem. See, we're predisposed to say no to God and yes to just whatever this flesh wants. And only God can change this. (laughs) When I was working in a grocery store the summer before I went to seminary, and there was a guy that I worked with, a young guy named Chad, who, uh, man, I was witnessing to all the time, and it just wasn't going anywhere. And then finally, Chad got fired because he got caught stealing from the grocery store. A few weeks later, I saw Chad come back into the grocery store, and I saw him go right to the manager. And later on, the manager came to me and said, you know that Chad... He came up to me and said that, you know, he was sorry for stealing. He apologized, wasn't mad, wasn't trying to get his job back, but just apologized and said he's changed, said he accepted Jesus, and now he's a new person. And he said, I don't believe it. Nobody can change just like that. (laughs) Well, the truth is, we can't just change like that, but God can change us just like that. Now, God changes us just like that, but does that mean that everything is just naturally right, automatically right? No, we still need to be changed. We still need to be transformed. Our thinking still needs to be renewed. We still have to deal with that battle that I talked about at the very beginning between an old self and a new self. And I know the old self is dead in Christ, but man, it just keeps wanting to creep back in, doesn't it? And so we have to deal with those things. And that means there's a process. And that, that's in those verses that I read earlier. Verse 22, Ephesians 4, 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. And that's something we just do. You put it off. That's in a Greek verb form that just means it's a kind of once-for-all thing, even though you have to keep doing it. But each time you do it, it's like with the determination that, man, this is it. This is not necessarily a process. This is something I do. I get it done. I get it over with. I might have to do it again, but man, I put off the old self. Put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That's why I think sometimes Christians who've lived a godly life for a lot of years and they left behind some corruption, 
some kind of corrupting behavior, and then they go back to it, they go back to it worse than when they left it. My, the flesh is being, being corrupted. That, that, that old self is not getting better. God, God is not trying to restore your old self. He's trying to do away with your old self and create a new self. So it's being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Verse 23, be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And that phrase, be made new in the attitude of your minds, that's a Greek verb form that means, man, this is ongoing. This is a process. You're being made new. And that's very important because we put off the old self, we put on the new, but we're being made new in our thinking, aren't we? We're being made new in the attitude of our minds. Our minds have to catch up with the new self in so many respects. Isn't that right? We have to go through this process. And that means it involves our minds. It involves our thinking. It involves our emotions. It involves our will. That's why it's so important to have emotionally healthy spirituality, to deal with our hearts, to deal with our heads, to deal with our spirits and our emotions, our relationship with God, but also, as Paul is making very clear, our relationships with each other. That takes some renewing of our thinking, an ongoing process. And here's what that process should lead to. It leads to a, now a discussion on the part of the Apostle Paul, something that he's insisting on, and he's going to lay out some specific behaviors that we ought to associate with the old way of life and put off. And then he's going to be giving us some new behaviors. But he doesn't just give you, here's a list of old behaviors like he does with uh, the Galatians passage where it deals with here are the, the works of the flesh and he gives a whole list and then he gives a list of the fruit of the spirit and you can compare the two lists, but that's not what, what Paul does with this one. Here he gives, here's something bad that pertains to the old self, you're putting that off and here's the new. Here's something else that's bad and here's the new that corresponds with that. In other words, there's a, a, a one by one juxtaposition of an old way of self and the new way of life that should replace the old self. Got that? So look at it this way. In each opportunity, I, I think putting them each one side by side is a way of saying every time you throw this off and put this on, you have just won a victory. You have just demonstrated that you're putting off the old and putting on the new. You just got to keep doing it, one behavior after another. You see something bad pop up, man, choose something good. Just keep on doing that. Make that a pattern of your life. So let's, let's see that pattern in Paul's writing here. Let's begin with verse 25, the next section of Ephesians 4. Therefore, each of you must put off. You notice that same language. You're putting it off. Put off falsehood and instead do what? Speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And there he's talking about our relationship with other believers, other Christians. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. But now you replace it with what? But must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So instead of stealing, 
get your own property and then be generous with it. All right? Let me find where I was here. Still no longer work doing something useful with their own hands that they may, be, may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But what, what do we do? What do we replace that old style behavior with? But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. What do you replace all that junk with? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Here's a good little summary that I got from F.F. Bruce, a great commentator on the Bible. He says, falsehood is to be replaced by truth, unrestrained anger by timely reconciliation. Stealing of other, others' property by the generous sharing of one's own. Foul language by helpful speech. Animosity by kindness. Right? Good list of things to work on. Get rid of one, replace it with something. Get rid of another, replace it with something else, okay? Something bad thrown off, something good taken on as you begin to be renewed in the attitude of your mind and live out the new self created to be like God. Now, did you notice in the midst of that list of juxtaposing ideas that Paul said, do not grieve the spirit? What in the world does that mean? If you have been raised in the charismatic Pentecostal world, you probably have heard all different kinds of things referred to as grieving the spirit. You know, and I, I've usually heard it, and you know, when you don't let the Spirit have His way in the church service, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. When you don't let the gifts of the Spirit flow, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. You know, when uh, you, you don't allow for revival and an outpouring of the Spirit, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. Well, really, those things are more adequately deemed as quenching the Holy Spirit, which is a totally different issue. This is grieving the Holy Spirit. You don't want to quench the Holy Spirit, but neither do you want to grieve the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is talking about here is not quenching the Spirit. He's talking about grieving the Spirit. And it's very important to, to understand the distinction. What is grieving the Holy Spirit? In the context, grieving the Spirit is this, treating other people badly, especially in the household of faith. When we don't treat each other right, that, that's when we grieve the Holy Spirit. I mean, we can run around, you know, and just be crazy and have all kinds of Pentecostal or charismatic manifestations and just let the Spirit move. But if we are not treating each other rightly, if we're not behaving, behaving rightly, if we're not portraying godly morals and ethics and values in our dealing with one another, Holy Spirit's not happy with all that. He's grieved. He's grieved by how we treat each other. And I love what, what Spurgeon says about this. He says, notice that Paul didn't say, do not anger the Spirit. He says, do not grieve the Spirit. And that points to just the heart of God as a father who's grieved when his children don't treat each other properly. Isn't that something? So what are we supposed to do? Jump into 
Ephesians chapter 5, we just wrapped up Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 say, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here's your example. Here's Jesus. Be good like God. Here's your example. Love each other and sacrificially serve each other. Oh, folks. So many times, especially when it comes to money and things like that, people say, well, the the New Testament doesn't cost for us to be sacrificial. Yes, it does. We're supposed to follow the sacrificial example of Jesus. Love and sacrifice. That's the way of Christ. But now Paul wants to get back to his dealing with specifics of ethics here. So just this short little little statement about following the example of Christ with regard to love and sacrifice. But, but there's no room for what Paul is about to lay forth here. You know, you have Paul setting up here what is, it's an adversative. You know, here's the good stuff that you should be displaying, love and sacrificial service to one another, but, but do not display this. In other words, Paul is getting ready to put sin on blast. (laughs) He's about to lay it out. And now he's not just talking about old self versus new self. He's putting it, he's getting back into those kingdom in conflict terms, you know, which I, I mentioned before already with powers and principalities and Jesus being above all those different powers and our being seated with Jesus. He's getting back into the fact that we have a kingdom of darkness that is in conflict with God's kingdom of light. And and so he's just saying this goes to a whole new level. Kingdoms in conflict. So let's pick up in Ephesians 5 verse 3. But among you, there must not even be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. No, notice there's no juxtaposition. Here's something bad and just replace it with something good. Here's something else bad and replace it with something good. Oh, you know, can't you all just get along? Paul has switched gears here. He has switched gears. Now he's that he's talking about these kingdoms in conflict. He's not talking about, oh, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He's saying because of these things, the wrath of God is being shown. <laughs> right? Do you notice the difference? Notice the distinction here? And, and, and he's just laying out, these are things that do not belong. And he's trying to encourage you, don't be deceived and don't be partners with this. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And, you know, if we as the church make it seem like, oh, these kinds of things, that they're, they're just okay and we're just going to have to put up with a little bit and, you know, it's just the way it is, don't be deceived. Don't be partners with this. You know, in, in recent 
weeks and months, a, a very famous preacher has been accused of some uh, really terrible sexual immorality. And I hope it's not true, and I don't know that it is. But I know that he's been very public with refuting it. But one of the things that he said in refuting the charges laid against him was this, and I quote, if everything was true, all I got to do is repent sincerely from my heart and keep on doing what he's doing as the pastor of a large ministry. Folks, I'm not near as smart as that guy. I don't display near the level of wisdom that I've heard from his lips. I cannot preach at a level, not a tenth of his preaching ability. But I can tell you this, he is wrong on that statement. He is wrong on that statement. Because what he's saying, all I got to do, if, if all those charges are true, all I got to do is repent and keep on going. Now, he went on to say, I don't have to repent. He's good on that, and I hope that's true. But the idea that if it were true, if the charges were true, as he said, all he has to do is repent is so wrong because it, it displays a lack of understanding of the way sin works in our lives. Because if the charges were true, that would be an indication that he's not living according to the new nature. He's living according to the old nature, which is being corrupted, which is, is decaying. And that represents, if it were true, yes, he could be forgiven just by sincere repentance from the heart. But he would have a ways to go in whatever needs to happen in the renewing of the attitude of his mind, as Paul says in this passage. There is some deep character flaw. There is some deep issue that must be dealt with, that must be healed if those charges are true. And just continuing in ministry as though, well, I just said, God, forgive me, and moved on, and I really meant it. That is so far from the reality. Do not be deceived, people, because of these things. God's wrath is and will be demonstrated. And I believe God wants to clean up his church. Oh, <laughs> he's cleaning. Mm. Notice in this passage, once he flips to dealing with this kingdom and conflict stuff, he doesn't give us these dueling character traits. He doesn't say, oh, don't grieve the spirit. He's saying, don't be deceived and don't partner with it. Don't, don't be a partner with this. Paul is saying there are no excuses. Church, there are some sins. It, don't say they're all the same. Some sins grieve the Holy Spirit. Like, we just don't get along and, and you know, we might talk a little bit harshly to one another every once in a while. Those are the kinds of things he's saying. And, and they belong to the old nature, and you need to put them off. And then he's, in that context, he says, don't grieve the spirit. Because that does grieve the spirit. You know, it's kind of like a parent when their kids fight with each other. It grieves the parent. But you're not going to put your kids in jail because, you know, one of them yelled at the other one. And I'm not saying yelling is wrong. It's, it's, it's an aspect of an abusive kind of situation in so many church circles today. But there's a level of sin and cooperation, partnership with the ways of the world and the kingdom of darkness that God's, 
he's not grieved at. He is angry at the wrath of God being the thing that, that Paul points to there. And can I just say that in that context, in the verses that we have looked at, God expects sexual purity. God does. And in recent years, there's been a lot of, of animosity displayed in the church world against the abuses of what they call the, the purity culture in the church. And I always wonder, like, what's wrong with the purity culture? What's wrong with that? Aren't we supposed to be pure? But what has been wrong with it is that so many times the emphasis has been on women in the church keeping themselves pure, but with the guys, well, you know, lust is every man's battle. So we just kind of, kind of just, yeah, we deal with it, but we don't deal with it. I mean, some of you have heard and known, known of young ladies in the church who were made to publicly confess when they got pregnant before they were married, right? You've heard of that. How many times in those circumstances did you see the boys stand up in front of the church and confess? I haven't heard it. And we've never been a church to put a young lady through that either. I always just thank God they didn't choose abortion and that, you know, hey, let's stand with them. Amen? Amen. And, you know, and I'm not saying all this because I want to get harsh and legalistic. And Paul doesn't lay it out just to be harsh and legalistic. Paul lays it out because he is wanting to make the family of God a safe place for spiritual growth and development. A place where nobody's going to be abused, where nobody's going to be taken advantage of, either materially, sexually, or verbally. And that's why Paul, he, he starts us with appeal for unity in the family of God because he's really concerned. Man, you, you want healthy families, you got to have a healthy church. I know a lot of times we turn it around to have healthy church, you got to have healthy families. But Paul starts with a healthy church first. Pastors, for too many decades, have put church people on notice for coming against leaders. And we, we pastors are easy targets. And, and the Bible does say some things about our approach to leaders within the family of God. But can I just say this? <laughs> I, I think it's time to put leaders in the body of Christ on notice for coming against God's precious people. God's flock. And what does he say to do? Expose it. Expose it. Verse 8 of chapter 5. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. My first thought when it comes to exposing these evil deeds in the body of Christ is that we need to shine the light on them. We need to say, man, we're going to be very clear. These things have no place in the body of Christ. They hurt the people of God. 
and they bring disrepute to the name of God. But Paul, man, this guy, he's always meddling. He doesn't let us get away with just pointing our fingers at other people. Because he turns the focus back to you. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. In other words, man, we, we need to wake up, rise up, and let Christ shine on our life. And shine in such a way, if there is any darkness, man, it has to go. How do we combat the darkness in our hearts and our lives? How do we combat the darkness in those deep crevices that we've kind of hidden from God and hidden from ourselves? We try to hide as best we can from other people as well. Let, light, let the light shine. Let the light of Christ. Wake up. Rise up. Let Christ shine on you. Mm. Man. That's when the blessings really begin to flow. That, that's, I, think, I think that's why Paul, then he can get back around. Man, know the will of God. Know the will of God. Be filled with the Spirit. Verse 17, the very next verse. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Remember that list of juxtapositions? Don't do this. Do this. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. And then speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then rising up in the power of God, remembering that our fleshly conflicts are not really the battle that we're in. We are arrayed against spiritual powers, and we're going to stand with the full armor of God. It gets back into that spiritual power, but all in between those powerful sections of Ephesians is this, this, this really... Strong expectation that we display the character and the goodness of God. Amen? Amen. 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 You might think that you have just, you know, ruined your life with something. Maybe, maybe you've lost your job because of some kind of behavior like my friend Chad did. Maybe something else has happened and you think, man, is there any hope? Can I change? Let me tell you, God can change you in a single moment. And I want to encourage you to pray right now to go from the old way of life to a new way of life that only God can produce in you. Yeah, there'll be a process of being made new in the attitude of your mind, but you will be created in the image of Jesus Christ, recreated in his image the moment you say yes to Jesus. So I want to ask anybody here in this room, anybody watching online, pray with me right now, out loud. Pray along with me. I'm going to ask everybody in the room to pray it out loud just to encourage those who are praying this for the first time. Let's surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. Pray these words. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. I believe Jesus died. He was raised from the dead. And he is Lord. Forgive me of all my sins. And be the Lord of my life. Fill me with your spirit. And help me live for you. I'm a new creation, created to be like you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Hallelujah. Let's praise God for that.